Today's guest is Todd Nielsen. Todd is a filmmaker and creator of the documentary The Last Stop. The Last Stop is a movie about the Elan School, a controversial treatment facility for so-called juvenile delinquents, which existed in the deep woods of Maine. That's existed, past tense. Because the Elan School was closed down in 2011 due to allegations of abuse, which dated back to its opening in 1970. The word allegations may be understating things. Children who were getting in trouble at home, at school, perhaps with the law. Kids whose behavior is so challenging that parents and loved ones are afraid for their well-being and don't know what to do with them. The Elan School posits itself as a therapeutic answer for these kids and their families' problems. The message that they wanted these families to hear is, if your kids don't get proper discipline from people like us, people who know what we're doing, then they are doomed to a life of prison or death or both. These children's parents and other family members believe that sending their kids to Elan was the only way that their children had any chance of a decent future. Many families went ahead and coughed up the hefty tuition and sent their kids to this allegedly premier rehabilitation and educational program. Kids were regularly taken then, once tuition was paid, from their homes, from large men who belonged to a third-party service called an escort service. They were put in a van, taken to a raised ranch in the middle of the woods in Maine. The philosophy behind the program, the way that the Elan staff were taught to treat children, was that they would break kids down emotionally to the greatest extent possible so that they could then build them back up. The breaking them down emotionally, which actually happened to be physically as well, included things like having a house meeting in which a person would stand in front of a crowd of other residents who would publicly harangue them, shouting threats, slurs, making jabs at their character, airing their grievances, or sending kids to a ring where they would put on boxing gloves and fight other students until they were eventually beaten. There have been stories in which students were put in a dumpster and forced to stay there for days at a time. Another student would stand guard, and if he let either of them get away, he or she would have to join them in the dumpster. And these aren't just allegations. They are actions that Joe Ritchie, founder of the school, proudly explained to the media in an expose of the school, which was filmed in the 80s. And he defended these actions. Before the interview, I'll play you just a moment of one of the interviews with Joe Ritchie. First, I want to say that my guest Todd Nielsen's film does a great job of describing not only the horrors of the school, but it also shows the viewer why the school was appealing why some of the school's alums swear that their experience made them better people. It shows that the school's ethics, loose as they were, did change with the times and for the better. And it allows parents who have sent their kids to the school or similar schools to hold two truths at once. On one hand, it's understandable why parents would want to send their kids there, why they felt it was in their kids' best interest. And on the other hand, the film provides a much-needed warning to folks who may be considering similar kinds of programs for their kids. It takes you through the story of Elan, stories from former residents, interviews with experts, and explains why and how the school was finally shut down. So my guest, Todd Nielsen, who himself attended Elan, explains all of this and more in our interview. And before I take you to that interview, I'm going to play you a clip of a conversation with news media and founder of the school, Joe Ritchie, who creeps me out. But I think it'll give you a sense of what we're talking about throughout the conversation. Remember that Todd Nielsen's movie, The Last Stop, is out today, May 19th, and I've provided a link to the film in the show notes. I know you'll enjoy the conversation, so as promised, and without further ado, here's a clip of the school's founder, Joe Ritchie, and then followed by my interview with Todd Nielsen. Enjoy. Joe, you make no bones about it. There is corporal punishment here at Elana. Tell us about it. What are the stages it comes in? Who's it administered by? Well, it's it's administered by the kids, first of all. Corporal, it's a, it's a harsh term, okay? What it is, is we have the ring, okay, which uh, everybody misinterprets. It's it's not a boxing ring, it's a ring of human people. You know, it, it doesn't, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're a uh, equal rights facility. Uh, we also use spanking, which is symbolic. Again, it's a last resort. Okay, and it's and it's one resident spanking another resident, and it's done with a ping pong paddle. Okay, and uh, usually a person won't get spanked more than once or twice, but it's a symbolic thing, which is if you're going to act like a baby, you should be treated like a baby. Well, when they spanked me, I mean, they didn't have to spank me, so I turned black and blue. 
simple as that. I mean, that was just one time after another. I was so sore I couldn't sit down. Now, to me, that's a little ridiculous. How often were you spanked? Every day for a long time. Hard. Oh, yeah. Clipboards. Um, hands. <laughs> Anything, you know. Something that they could... Well, I would feel it, supposedly. They thought it would... I needed it because I supposedly was a terribly big baby. So I'm here with Todd Nielsen, the producer of the documentary called The Last Stop. Todd, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Zach. Great to be here. Um, wow, a lot to dive into, man. I just watched your documentary and I, I've been reading a lot about the school that it's centered around called the Elon School, a place in Maine that's ostensibly was a therapeutic sort of boarding school type or reform school, I think they touted themselves as, um, where right. people were sent there as a last stop before jail, perhaps death, and parents would send kids there in desperation. It was an expensive for-profit school. And like a lot of similar schools in recent times, they had a a long history of just really abusive behavior um, all around. And of course, I'm going to stop there because anything that I'm saying, you could just repeat, but with more detail. The film highlights... I think in a pretty fair way, the troubles that people faced while they were there, and I think troubles would be downplaying, you know, maybe maybe that's not a strong enough kind of a word, while also explaining that there's a reason why it was able to last for its, I think, over 40-year existence, because there were some aspects of that place that allowed people to gain a little purchase in a, a social group or maybe better themselves in some ways. And so I'd love you to help me tease all that apart. Before we go anywhere... Could you just tell people a little bit about yourself and what inspired you? What was your basis for creating this documentary? And then we can get into the, you know, talking about the school. Yeah. So I am a uh, a, a filmmaker and and editor based on New York city. And I went to Elon back in 2005 and I graduated in 2007. And when I got out, I sort of forgot about the school for a little while, but then Thoughts started coming in again. I started thinking about it. I started joining some groups about the school uh, from people who went to the school and, you know, started sort of, you know, looking into its history and the history surrounding the school and other schools like it because Alan is just part of a bigger industry. And I realized that what I went through wasn't very normal. You know, I kind of just always thought Alan was just something that happens to bad kids, you know, when they're bad, that it was normal. Like, you know, you're, you're committed crime, you go to jail. Um, you know, if you're a bad kid, you go to a place like Elan. And I didn't realize after getting out that I had gone through something very unique and something kind of, you know, truly kind of bizarre in a way. And, you know, being, you know, working in film and working in video, I realized and, you know, seeing that there really haven't been any documentaries done about Elan or any school really like it. I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of put that story to film in a, in a visual and audio aspect. Uh, so people can kind of understand, you know, what it was like being there, what the daily regimen was like, what kind of kids went there, and how it sort of fit into the whole rehabilitation world. You know, you, you said it was a, a therapeutic school. It was, the, name, the proper name for these places are behavioral modification programs. Um, they don't really build themselves. They kind of play with the names a little bit. They might call themselves, you know, like a, a school, you know, like an education sort of school or, you know, a, uh, you know, rehabilitation, but, but really the proper name would be behavioral modification because their goal is to take your, your behavior and modify it and, you know, change it. So, you know, that's the, the ultimate goal. So working on the film and meeting, you know, people that had gone there years before me and years after me, we all shared the same kind of camaraderie even if somebody was, went there in the 70s, you know, and I went there in the 2000s, you know, it was like, you know, instant, you know, connection. It, it was really, it's really been kind of a journey. Um, and I'm just glad that the film is out there now. And people, you know, I constantly get emails, you know, I'm going down the, the, uh, the troubled teen rabbit hole. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm really glad that your film is there to kind of help explain it and put it into a kind of cohesive package that, you know, helps people understand. You were a student there, or an alum, and you were there from 2005 to 2007. I, I want to dive into some of the details because as painful as they are, 
the breathtaking. And it's just one of those stories that we've heard a lot of, you know, in different domains too, where some horrific thing is happening and it's happening right underneath our noses. And you look back and it's only seemingly in retrospect that you would say, how could anyone have let all those things go on? So before we delve into that, I'm just curious, what tipped you off when you, when you left the school, you said you had some sense that, you know, whatever happened to you was sort of just, it's almost like you had a bad weekend. What happened to you is what happens yeah. to kids who are bad. So what tipped you off, you know, when you got out? It was really talking to other people who also had been there. You know, when you're there at the school, you're sort of in a, um, a mindset. Like you're, 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 it's like being in a grind because constantly, you know, you're, you're never not doing anything there. You're, you know, I mean, I could go into like the, the daily schedule, but basically you're, you're always functioning in a sort in, in a way. You're either cleaning something, you're either writing reports on somebody, you're either in a group or, you know, scrubbing a toilet or, or whatever. You're always doing something and you never really have time to think like what is going on around me, you know what I mean? What, you know, what, what, are, what are the you know, implications of what's being done to me? You just think it's, you know, it's what you have to do to get out. It's like a fight or flight thing. You know, you're, you're, you're doing what you have to do to get out of this program. You're hyper uh, And then when you get out, you're just like, oh, I'm out, finally. You know what I mean? Mm. I can go back to my life. Not for everybody. Not everybody did go back to their life. So I just kind of forgot about it. I was just glad to be out. So how, how I kind of, you know, got back into it is just talking to other people and hearing their experiences and seeing the damage it, it did to people, the, the help it, it, it provided to people, and, you know, especially some of the bizarre stories that I've heard. And, you know, Alan did change a lot. By the time that I was in Alan, it had changed a lot. And during the 70s and the 80s, you know, it was a lot more uh, brutal than, than, than when I was there. It was still brutal, but it was a lot more brutal back then and a lot more unforgiving. The documentary follows the kind of evolution of this place, you know, how it changed and, and what, you know, what it was like back in the day and, and you know, how those things kind of through advocacy and child protective services and, you know, the, the states kind of starting to come down on them, uh, how things did kind of change. Uh, it wasn't enough, obviously, but, but yeah. The school's trajectory kind of followed some semblance of a moral arc, I, I guess I hear you saying. Like, it wasn't quite yeah, as bad when you attended. Times. Right, right. Yeah. It had it had to change with the times, no doubt. While keeping that kind of um, their core concepts, that sort of attack therapy kind of concept. You know, we're gonna we're gonna beat you down until you change. Without that, you know, the school doesn't work. But really, you know, in the end, the school couldn't survive. You know, the one of the things that really brought about the end of the school is the internet. And I think this is one of the, the, the kind mm-hmm. of the uh, um, uh, beautiful parts of the story is that the people who brought accountability to Elon were the kids who went there, you know, by forming online campaigns, by manipulating searches, by, you know, uh, authoring websites, you know, detailing what happened at the school. So nowadays parents go online and they search, you know, okay, Elon school, maybe I should send my kid there. And all these things pop up saying, you know, no, you shouldn't send your kid here. You know what I mean? And so that really put a damper on their wallet and eventually they had to shut down. So it's interesting because it was not any state regulation or uh, breaking of any codes or whatnot that closed the lawn or any school like it for that matter. You know, it's very rare that these schools actually get shut down by, um, by the authorities. It's usually because, econo- because of economic reasons that they can't continue. Hmm. If I'm gonna go reverse chronologically here, could you name maybe one or a couple experiences that you had while you were there and we'll just note that this is as the school is changing with the times. This would be it's like perhaps it's most charitable light that we could see it. Yet you still notice that there were things that you were going through while you were there that just were not part of the norm or perhaps not healthy. Could you shine some light on what a couple of those things could have been? Yeah. First off, I think it would be good if I explained the, what Alan used to do. And I want to also touch on how Alan works. So the core, the core idea behind Alan is that they're going to break you down and then build you back up. And to do that, they use humiliation tactics, such as, you know, dressing people in bizarre costumes. You know, if a girl liked a boy or something or, or showed that she liked a boy or maybe flirted with a guy, they would dress her up as a prostitute, you know, or they would put a sign on her saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a whore, please ask me why. You know, I'm just going to end up on the street one day. Constant confrontation, screaming in people's faces, 
screaming, you know, in groups at each other about how horrible the other person is and extremely like, you know, using, you know, you know curse words. I can show you a, a link to a sample uh, clip of, of how these feelings sounded. Uh, it's really, it's really bizarre. Um, so, you know, all these tactics they sort of use to break you down um, and then they would build you back up. Now, when I was there, they got rid of a lot of these things. Oh, and by the way, they also had a thing called the ring, which somebody acted out violently or somebody, you know, you didn't even have to act out violently. Let's say you just were not participating in the program and this is a last resort they relied on. They would put you in a box, and not a boxing ring, but a, a ring of people, so a, a circle of people, and they would put boxing gloves on you and somebody bigger than you and you would duke it out. Uh, and you never won. They would just keep sending in kids until you were beat down. Uh, and it's to show you, strangely, that violence never solves anything. There's always going to be somebody that, uh, that's going to be. So they had kind of reasons behind everything they did. So now a lot of this stuff over the years obviously sort of went away. You know what I mean? Like they couldn't, you know, they couldn't dress people in costumes any, anymore or, um, you know, put them in boxing rings. You know, the states just weren't going to have it. It just does not look good. I still would love to return to some of those and, and dig at them in a little bit of detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, a lot of things, a lot of those things went away over the years and, and they got rid of them. Now, when I was there, they still had the screaming, you know, you were still, people were still getting up in your face. And one of the things they, they still had that was definitely downright abusive was the corner. And that, you know, it was, had been in the lawn since the beginning. And, you know, basically, if you were not participating in the program and you, you, you did not do what you were told to do, you were put in a corner and you were to face the corner from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And there were kids who sat in the corner for months. You know, not, not, not exaggerating for months, you know, they would get taken out of the corner, given a general meeting where a general meeting is when like 50, not 50, but you know, 20 or so kids, you know, rush up to you um, and surround you and scream in your face. Uh, and then, you know, then they would take you and put you back in the corner. So, you know, it's just complete isolation and it's, and it's, it sucks. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about it. You know, you're, fa you're facing a corner and especially as a kid, you know, where you have energy and you, you want to talk and interact, you know, imagine how that feels. Uh, and there was a kid there that was like 13 years old who would face the corner for months. And it was just, you know, I didn't think of it at the time, but thinking of it now, it's just downright abusive. And then a few of the aspects of the program are all, were also really problematic to me. Like the fact that nobody there was trained in any sort of therapeutic or psychological practice. Everybody there was a graduate of the program. You know, they, they did bring in some people, you know, that wanted to get a, a career in, you know, education or a career, you know, working with kids. But for the most part, the, the longtime staff there were graduates of the program who went on to work there. And they thought, you know, okay, well, we've been through these experiences, so we have the ability to help others who have been through these experiences. You know, because it helped us, it will help them. And I should also say that Alon didn't really have any way of kind of sorting out who came into the program. It's if you had the money to go there, then you were let in. And by the way, when I was there, it was $54,000 a year to go there, more than Harvard at that time. Looking back, those are the things that really stuck out to me the most. The fact that nobody there really, really seemed to have a, have a clue as to what they were doing. They were just doing what they felt was right. Uh, th those are things that happened to you while you were there? Now, for me, I, I quickly, very quickly realized what was going on and how I, I realized what the game was, right? So mm -hmm. I realized that if I want to get out of here, I need to do what I'm told to do and I need to do the program. And by the way, I should also say that when I was there, I was 17 and I turned 18 very quickly after I had come there. And when you're 18, you can sign out of the program. They don't make it easy, but you can sign out of the program if you want to. It's actually very rare that people did sign out. And the reason for that is because they kind of, they kind of drilled into your head that if you leave, that you're going to die, you know, or you're yeah. going to end up on the street or your parents aren't going to take you home or your life is going to be miserable or whatever. And they drill that into your head on a day-to-day -day basis. So I was, I, I was, I guess you could say brainwashed. I mean, I, I want to get more into my, uh, my, how I felt after the program a little later, but I guess you could say I was convinced that if I didn't, if I left the program that I was going to die and that I was going to fail in life. So I stayed and I worked through the program and I was out in two years. So a lot of bad things really didn't happen. A lot of those things didn't really happen to me because I, I quickly acclimated to the program, but I saw those things happen to a lot of other people. Like I said, there was a, there was a 13 year old kid. I'll never forget him that they just constantly, constantly dragged through all these awful, awful things. Uh, and it never did anything. He never, he never got better. You know what I mean? It just it obviously was not working, but they kept him there because of the money. So the reason I wanted to go in 
that order of you know, talking about your experience is because yeah. I'm tempted to point out some people who could be naysayers of your message, which you made impossible by virtue of the, the okay. evidence that, that your film was grounded in. That's one of the reasons I appreciate projects like this right. is because, for instance, in the 80s, we had a wave of people who were convinced by these psychotherapeutic techniques that they had repressed memories that of being abused or being things happening to them. They were sure because of this Freudian psychoanalysis that was being done that, you know, parents or teachers of the past were abusing them and they were just remembering things in vivid detail. And of course, what we recognized was that memories can be created post hoc. There can be false memories of what has happened. And it would be, it could be easy for a critic who's maybe drunk too, a little too much of the false memory Kool-Aid to say, well, Jesus, these kids now they've gotten together, they're reminiscing. Isn't it possible that these are just old tales that they were telling? Is it really the case that this school is, was so bad? Uh, but it doesn't take so much digging into this story before you figure out that that can't be the case. So first of all, there's the fact that it got shut down. Second of all, the documentary just goes through this chronology of the school's existence and ubiquitous stories of you know, people's experiences there and they all line up. So I wonder if we could kind of go through and talk about, I don't know, start, starting from earlier days, what was the school's basis for existing and what was it like when people found out if a kid say found out that they were going to be going to that school, how did they, how did they first make their entrance in the school? And then what were they experiencing when they were there? I guess feel free to also add in some of the, we can go into detail with some of the things you listed before, and we can even talk about some of the more you know, insidious procedures that were happening. So just, I guess just give a walkthrough of um, the genesis and what a person's life would be like if they were going through the school. Yeah, I mean, so first off, Alan came from a place called Sinanon. And Sinanon was, was kind of the first of these therapeutic communities. And it was created by a guy named Charles Diedrich, who thought that Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't tough enough and wasn't doing enough for people, you know, especially for people that, that were addicted to drugs. They didn't really have a place to go because Alcoholics Anonymous didn't think of them as the same. And Narcotics Anonymous was kind of, you know, just kind of starting up at the time. So Sinanon came along. And, you know, he, Charles Diedrich created this, this philosophy that, you know, in order to recover from your, um, your addiction, you need to be confronted about it. You know, not just, not talking about just how you feel and, and, and this and that, you need to be really confronted. You know what I mean? You know, why, why do you do these things? You know, why, why are you slacking off? And in, and in, you know, very, very, you know, in a very harsh way. And, you know, it was a, a tough love kind of thing. You know, the addiction needs to be kind of beat out of you. And what happened is people graduated or, or left Synanon and they thought like, wow, this, this worked. I'm cured. Uh, I'm going to go start my own, my own institution now. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, Daytop came along, Daytop Village. Um, uh, you know, Phoenix House came along, Sea-Doo uh, Straight Incorporated. And, you know, all of these kind of came from Synanon because it was like, wow, this is this new cure. It works. People were getting people off addiction. And then they started to gear it towards kids. You know what I mean? Because there was a real market there for, for kids that were, you know, getting into drugs, especially during the 70s, um, you know, 80s, you know, doing, you know, you know, smoking, you know, marijuana or taking acid or whatever. You know, this, this was a big thing. And there was a big scare around for parents, you know, the just say no thing. And, and you know, Richard Nixon saying, you know, drugs are our public, you know, our biggest enemy. People were scared and they wanted to, they needed a place to help their kids or they thought they did. So these places marketed themselves like, oh, we can help them, send them to us. Uh, and so parents did. And it was, a and it, it was a booming industry. It still kind of is, but it really was a booming industry. I mean, it was, you know, people were, there was a, there's a lot of these places. There's still a lot, and there used to be, you know, a lot more it's under this umbrella of the troubled teen industry. So what would a daily, you know, kind of experience there be like for a kid? You know, it, it changed, it's, it's different on every program. I can just say for Alan, you know, normally, you know, you wake up, you clean your dorm, uh, and then you hit the floor and, you know, most of the day you're functioning. So there were, the, the house is split into different offices. You had the service crew, the business office, the communications office, the expediters and, um, uh, and the coordinators. 
uh, and each office had a different responsibility in the house. The house, if you think about it, it was kind of like a microcosm of society. That's what they called it. Mm. The business office handled, you know, business aspects, you know, like paperwork, you know, supplies, like pencils, pens, notebooks, uh, sundries, like your soap and, you know, your deodorant, whatever. Uh, the communications office was responsible. They were kind of like your news people. They brought in news from the outside world and planned events and stuff. The expediters were the security force. They guarded doors. They checked on people to make sure they were doing what they were doing. Wrote reports on people, kind of like spies. And then you had uh, the, oh, the kitchen crew. They handled the food, obviously. And then the coordinators, they ran the house. So it really was, the whole program was run by the kids. You know, the, the adults just kind of, you know, hung back and, and watched and kind of, you know, pushed people along. But everything was run by the kids. It was a, it was a self-functioning society within the house. And you worked your way up through these, through these um, positions until you graduated. You know, and every time you worked up through a position, you would get more responsibility, get more trust. Uh, you know, like, when, you know, when you first entered the program, you can't go into a room alone. You can't go to the bathroom alone. You can't talk to people without, you know, somebody of a higher position listening in on you. Um, you know, very, very strict. You know, jail time, you know, jail times 10. You know, you, you couldn't, you know, look, read books that you wanted to read. You couldn't listen to music that you wanted to listen to. You know, you were completely sort of subservient to the, to the community until you gained these privileges. Um, so you worked your way up through the program by participating, by going to group, you know, talking about your feelings, confronting people, and doing well at your job. Um, so you would function most of the day doing your job, whether it's uh, getting the meal ready or filling out paperwork or... Uh, you know, making art for the, the walls or whatever. There were all these philosophies all over the wall, like, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins in a single step, hope, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, uh, midday you would go to groups and that's when we had encounter groups and that's where you would scream at people and confront them about, you know, what, how they either made you angry or jealous or concerned or, or whatever you had to confront them. Uh, and then we would have general meetings. You know, if somebody was really acting out in the house, everybody in the house would get their feelings off for that person, scream in their face, and 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 then confront them as to you know how their attitude is affecting the whole house. Uh, you know, it really was kind of you know the military uses a very kind of similar um, um, tactic in that if one soldier is not performing correctly, then everybody in the troop would be punished, and that was very much how Alon worked. One person was lagging behind, everybody in the house would be punished. And you could, you could see how that might make you extremely angry at that one individual. You know, everybody might not get dessert. And in a place where you're already not getting, a, you know, a lot of food and you're, you're hungry or, you know, you're, you're tired, you know, yeah, you're going to be really angry at that person. That's the basic kind of uh, structure of the program and how it worked. Talk to me about some of the ways, like, if it's going to be called a behavior modification program, then... I think just by virtue of that, they're going to be using behavior reinforcements, whether they're negative reinforcements or positive. And of course, by watching the documentary, right. they've clearly honed in on negative reinforcements. Talk about some of those and uh, the ideas behind why they did them and what the experiences were like of being negatively reinforced for something. What they called negative reinforcement or what they called punishments were learning experiences. That was the, how they dubbed it. If, uh, if you did something, and it can really be anything, um, you know, expediters, like I said, I, I explained what they are, kind of like policemen, were constantly writing down what you did wrong. And they would submit those reports to the chief expediter, and the chief expediter would form an incident sheet, and then that would go to the coordinator who would write out a punishment. Again, all of these are kids. There's no authoritative individual staff professionally trained involved. This is all us doing this. Let's say I took an extra milk at the table or something. Well, an incident report would get written on me and I would be sent to a, what's called a dealing crew and they would scream at me. They would say, you know, you did this because you think you're entitled and selfish and, you know, you always got your way at home. And, you know, if you continue this into the future, you're going to just be, you know, whatever, you know, whatever psychobabble you wanted to scream at the person. And it sounded very robotic. It's not, it's not as, uh, if you hear one of these dealing crews, it just, it sounds extremely robotic because it's nobody really wanted to, nobody was really into it. You just had to do it. Uh, and then they might send you to scrub a toilet or something like that. Scrub a toilet, scrub the floor all day or, or whatever. But if you kept doing that, the punishments would get more severe which could include getting a general meeting, which is where everybody in the house screams at you and it's extremely humiliating. And, you know, you're getting spit in the face and people are yelling about how they hate you so much and how they want to, 
you know, want to kick your ass and how much of a loser you are and, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, just imagine almost like a kind of a sea of screaming faces at you. Then you would be sent to scrub a floor or something like that. And if you kept acting out, you would be put into the corner and you would face the corner until you were ready to come out. Um, and like I said, there were kids who would sit in there for months. They refused to participate in the program or they just couldn't, you know what I mean? Uh, there were kids there who were very young. There were kids there who had, you know, learning disabilities or behavioral problems and that need, might have needed medication. By the way, they didn't allow any medication there, psychotropic medication, um, mm. that just couldn't acquiesce to the program. Uh, so th this was just constantly happening to them, just a cycle of getting screamed at, going into the corner, getting screamed at, going into the corner, scrubbing floors. And, you know, it just became, you know, a normal everyday thing. So during my time, that's kind of how the punishments and how, and how that negative, you know, reinforcement worked. Uh, and now there was positive reinforcement too, you know, I mean, this might sound ridiculous, but if you did well, you might get a soda. <laughs> and I know that mm. sounds ridiculous, but I mean, a soda, when you're, when you have nothing but milk and like water to drink or some gross juice that they put way too much sugar in, uh, is nice. So, you know, if you get a, a soda for, you know, you know, tattling on somebody, that was some reinforcement for you. Or maybe you, maybe you get a, a home visit or something. Maybe you can go talk to your family for an extra, you know, 30 minutes or something like that. Um, or listen to music for an extra 10 minutes in the dorms or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, that's how they kind of reinforce behavior. And obviously, I mean, you're talking about how the school is changing with the times. And, of course, you think about everything you just said, that being the best that the school is able to become, ethically speaking, right. that, that sort of makes you sick. I mean, we know better. Yeah. We knew better yeah. when you were going there, and we know better now. Talk yeah. about some yeah. of the historic, historically some of the gross and the negligent kind of uh, punishment people could expect if they were not able to cohere to the program. People that were there, you know, way before me during that mm -hmm. early time, you know, they have stories that are just, you know, that are just insane, you know, from, right. you know, you know, getting sauce poured on their head and getting dressed in bizarre costumes and, and you know, literally getting, getting beat up in, in a room off to the side or, you know, behind every, every, you know, off to the side or something like that. It was extremely violent back then. And it was still, it was still, you know, and there's always this like kind of rift in the, in the Elan community, you know, who had it the worst, but it, very, it really is relative. I mean, you don't think of it that way, you know, it's kind of relative. And um, I mean, it was the best, I mean, they, they wanted to keep their core philosophy, you know, the breakdown and build up philosophy. They wanted to keep that. And because in a way, you know, when a parent is getting a call and their kid is saying, Oh mom, I'm doing great. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're treating me well, or, or, you know, I'm really changing and starting to get in touch with my feelings behind that call is actually, you know, somebody wa watching the call, listening in on the call and recording on it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't say the right thing, then you're going to get, you're obviously going to get punished. If you say, Hey mom, they're, 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 you know, kicking my ass here. They're screaming at me. Um, you know, you're going to, you're going to get in trouble. So they needed to keep that in order for the program to kind of, I think, you know, function and kind of keep its reputation that it had because people thought it did work. I mean, you know, and for some people it did, but people really, you know, relied on it. And there were states sending kids to this place. You know, they were backed by, by the government, you know, New York state sent a lot of kids there. Um, so they needed, they needed to prove their results. And like I said to you before we talked um, to fix somebody, or, you know, I say that with quotes, to fix somebody in a short amount of time, even in two years, um, and to prove that requires a certain amount of, um, of, uh, of force, you know what I mean? Of, uh, to, you know, you need to, you need to force them along. Um, so I think that's why they were able to, that's, that's why they kind of, you know, although they got rid of a lot of those kind of sort of bizarre punishments, they did kind of keep their basic structure and they needed it to prove their worth. Again, before we talked, we were talking about the ways that people tend to air correct their own lives over time. And you're saying, you know, the, the program is aware that if they just give people room to grow, then they might not, have, they want to expedite the process. And so they might not get the, uh, quote unquote yeah. results that, that people are looking for, or at least that are good for optics. And parents um, want you, that too, though. They, they, want, right, right, they want a quick right. fix as well. That's right. Right. Exactly. So I guess there's a, there's a reason why 
a hefty tuition is actually good for all of this. It's good for the lining the pockets of people that run the school. And it gives parents a sense that, all right, well, they, I better get the best of their, whatever their MO is. I better, you know, I better see those results in real time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, $54,000 a year. And by the way, the place was like a rundown shack in the woods. It was not like a nice, it was not like a nice place that, you know, looked like kids were paying $54,000 a year to, to, to be at. It was a rundown shack, you know, mm. definitely. Yeah. I mean, but those are features of the program. I mean, the, the more you put somebody in an uncomfortable situation, the more they're, they're going to want to get out of it and the faster they're going to want to get out of it and the faster they're going to need to prove their worth that they're going to get out of it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it really is, you know, their philosophy was, was a way to expedite that process. And a lot of, and for the most part, you know, it didn't work on a lot of kids. You know, I have uh, a lot of my friends, you know, have, have died, you know, have committed suicide or died in other ways, or, you know, are still addicted to drugs. Um, You know, their lives have not gotten back on track. So does it work in the long term? Obviously, maybe for some, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we were all innocent, you know, angels and that we were just being, I don't, I don't even like to use the word abuse, really, because there were some kids there that had done heinous things and things that I had done that were very not, you know, not good things to do, not, you know, that a human should do. We weren't angels. We needed help and we had problems. You know, was this the solution? Well, that's for you to decide if you view the documentary. Right. What's your sense? I mean, you said obviously some people aren't getting better. Some people seem to have done worse than than maybe they could have. And I'm thinking that perhaps some people grew up and became something and are successful despite the program, not by virtue of it. What is your sense? What do you, what do you think percentage wise? Let me, let me tell you, I mean, I, I, I'm not bragging, but I think I I did pretty well after leaving the program. And, uh, you know, I kind of did get my life together. I still struggle, but for the most part, you know, I'm healthy and, you know, my life's not, not awful. For me, I, I look at everything that I've been through as kind of a stepping stone to where I am now. Would I have gotten better just naturally, just kind of growing up and, and becoming more mature? Possibly. I don't know. It's also very possible I, I didn't. It's very possible if I didn't go to Alon, I could have ended up in a gutter somewhere. I, I don't know. And I'm not willing to, to take that risk. If I could, you know, magically, if I could just erase that part of my life and, you know, see what happens, I wouldn't take that risk. But a a real problem with the program is that if you didn't acquiesce to the program and you didn't do what you were supposed to do and work your way through the program, you only saw the negative aspects of the program. You know what I mean? Like that kid who I said was just constantly in and out of the corner. You know, he never got up up, he never went through any of the ranks and got up to the, the second half of the program, which is where they really put their trust in you and, and let you kind of be yourself. And a lot of kids left like that, constantly being told how big of a failure they are and how much of a, a, a loser they are and how they'll never succeed. And it's like leaving, it's like, you know, kind of like a half-baked thing, you know, you're taking, mm-hmm. you're taking the bread out of the oven too fast. And, you know, that's now practice on their part, no doubt. You know, and again, I attribute that to the fact that they had no way of, of uh, screening people, took people based on you know, if they could afford it. So there was a, a lack of care there. The, the administration definitely didn't care whether you survived or not. You know? And then they could use you if you did fail as an example to the others, you know, which they did often. The staff there didn't have a screening process for who they thought they would be able or not be able to help. They did, I think it was Maya called it in your film, a wallet biopsy. How thick is your wallet? That's a good term for it because that's exactly what it was. I never, when I went there, first of all, by the way, the way I went there, uh, I was woken up in the middle of the night, ripped out of bed by, by two guys, two big like Marine guys, and they drove me up to Maine. Um, that, that's something that traumatizes me still to this day. I'll never forget that, ever. Hmm. More than the program. And, you know, if any industry needs, needs to be shut down, it's that one, definitely. Uh, and they're called escort services. You know, kids should not be ripped out of bed by, by big guys and sent up to God knows where. Was that, um, that's a third, a third party <laughs> service? Yeah, they're called escort services. And there's a lot of them. Uh, and their, their job is to, to take you and just take you out of bed in the middle of the night when you're, you know, kind of half asleep, throw you in a van and, and drive you up to, to wherever. And they do it by force. If you try to run away, they'll grab you, you know, shit, put, put your hands behind your back and put you in a van. Um, and these aren't police officers. They're just some guys, 
you know, just some guys that are physically adept and can do it. Um, very violating. Uh, they called it the Elan Snatch back in the day. That's, that's what they called it. Tell me about this sort of hierarchical order. You know, one part of that positive reinforcement or ostensibly positive reinforcement was that you got to move up ranks. And how did that work? Yeah, so you started as a worker when you came into the program, which is, you know, basically you're just cleaning stuff. And then you work your way up through the ranks. You become a ramrod, which is where you oversee a small crew of workers. And then you become an expediter, which is where you're a security guard, like I said before. Then you become a department head. You lead a department. And then you become a coordinator, which is kind of like being the, the CEO of a department. Um, and also you, you run the house. And you work your way up through there by participating, obviously, in the therapeutic aspects of the program, participating in groups, doing your job that, that you need to do, you know, with pride. You know, if you're cleaning, you're really cleaning and not just kind of getting over on it. And they will give you evaluations along the way as to whether you can go to the next position or not. And then you could get shot down at any point, you know, in your uh, journey through these, through the hierarchy. And that's when you're just scrubbing floors all day. You're stuck at the bottom level. You're scrubbing floors. You have no privileges, you know, nothing. You're just scrubbing floors. You're basically, and you're kind of a leech on the house because people need to watch you and, you know, you can't really do anything else. So um, and that makes people angry at you and that makes them want to confront you. So, yeah, so that's, that's how you kind of go through the, the, the steps of the program is just by participating in the program as, as much as, as you can. One of the um, villain-like characters, and unfortunately he was a real person, uh, of your film was one of the founders, Joe Ritchie. Tell me about the days of Joe Ritchie. I mean, I would watch those interviews with him, and there were interviews by news media trying to, I, I suppose, I, even though it's kind of softball questions, they were kind of interrogating him, like, hey, this kind of seems odd. It doesn't really seem commonsensical. What's going on here? And he had this way about him. I'll let, please, I'll let you tell me more. But it, it, he was just cold, a cold personality that made you feel as the questioner, like, how could you be so dumb as not to understand what's really going on here, you idiot? And it was something about that gave me, right. I think I just said, just gave me chills. So talk about him and talk about the, the period of time in which he was running things. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Joe was dead by the time I got there. He was, I think he died, I think it was in 2001. I yeah, think so, yeah, 2001. 2001. Yeah, um, so he was dead by the time I got there. But when he was alive, you know, he was, you know, he was the powerhouse. He was the guy that, you know, led the school. And that was really during that time from 2001 to 1970 when it started, that was Alon at its best. Well, not, I don't want to say best. I mean, it was like Alon at his most powerful. You know, he right. knew how to run that place and he knew how to keep it going. Um, and he was, I mean, he was, a, he was a unique character. I mean, the guy walked around with gold chains. He drove, you know, a Mercedes. I think he had a Rolls Royce as well. He had a fur coat. He had like a, you know, a fedora. With, you know, he was, people say he looked like a pimp. And, you know, he called himself the God of therapy, like he was, you know, the Lord of this place and he knew how to fix people. And he had come from, he had gone to Daytop, you know, it's a Daytop village and Daytop is the foundation of Elan. It's very, very similar program. If you walk into Daytop, you'll, you'll see a lot of what Elan was. Daytop and Daytop is still around, but they, they do have a, a unique reputation. They have a good reputation, I think. You know, you can leave Daytop if you want. Elan, you couldn't leave if you tried to walk out the door they would uh, tackle you. So Joe came from Daytop and he graduated from Daytop and thought like, oh, well, I did so well in this program, I'm gonna start my own program. And he started a, you know, a few uh, you know, small programs and then landed on Elan and Elan was, was his big thing. But so, like I said, a lot of these places came from other institutions that did the same practice and people thought they could do it themselves. And Joe was one of those people, and he was a businessman. He owned a racetrack, a, a horse racing track. He owned a lot of property. Uh, he ran for governor. I mean, he was like, they, you know, people saw him as like a, an entrepreneur, you know, somebody who was, you know, really, really business savvy and, you know, get, a go-getter. Um, and he knew how to manipulate the media. He knew how to, how to you know, kind of uh, skew the narrative in his, you know, in his favor. Uh, you know, when people were saying, oh, Lon is abusing kids, he would say, no, that's a conspiracy. And these people obviously don't care about kids. They just want to see kids fail. I care about kids. Right. So we're going to help them. And we're not going to let anybody get in our way. Right. Uh, so he was very manipulative. Uh, but yeah, he was a character. And um, 
If you saw him, he was, uh, from what people tell me, you know, he demanded respect in a room. If you walked in, everybody's, you know, everybody sat right up. You know, even if you weren't in a line, he, he commanded a room. And he was very, very uh, charismatic. And a lot of the people who do run these programs are that way. You kind of have to be. You didn't know him. And I know that as a filmmaker, I'm, sh I'm sure that you want the viewer of the film to make opinions for themselves. I don't know if I could get this out of you. Do you believe that he believed that he was doing what was best for kids? Or do you believe that he just did whatever he thought was best for himself? Oh, I think he just wanted to make money. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. No doubt. I mean, he is, you know, you saw the interviews with him. I mean, he, first of all, he might be good at making money, but he doesn't really seem like a very intelligent person. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything that is that, uh, and you know, we're limited on, on, on what we can hear from him because there weren't, you know, that many stories done about him, but um, he doesn't really have any, that sort of intelligence. Now the, the other uh, person that ran the program, Gerald Davidson, was a, um, a licensed psychologist. Right. And uh, he ran the program with Joe because he had the medical license because he, he could look official. But Joe really ran the program. I mean, he was just, Joe Davidson was just there to collect, uh, collect his income as well. And Joe ran the day-to-day -day operations. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the guy was, you know, like I said, you know, he, he, he walked around like he was, you know, with, like I said, with gold chains and, 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 and fur coats and Rolls Royces. I mean, he liked, obviously liked to make money. And he likes he liked the attention too. Like it's kind of ironic that the guy owned a horse racing track, which is very like if you think of like vices, people betting and drinking and yeah, yeah. That doesn't really like go along with somebody who would also run a therapeutic school for kids that needed help. He obviously thrived on people's inability to make good decisions for themselves. Yeah, and he demanded respect. He wanted to be looked at, and he wanted to be kind of like he wanted. To guy you know what I mean I mean he was an Italian guy from New York you know growing up in that in that kind of environment and he did he was very successful in what he did but uh you know at the cost of at the cost of what one of the segments that you showed kind of <laughs> juxtaposed his dumbing down of the accusations levied against him versus some of the things that the people who were attending the school explained so I, I won't tell them all but you know, for instance, there was that one, they said, well, you, you, some of the punishments that you do uh, are using spanking. Uh, talk about that. And he was saying, right. oh, God, you know, people call it corporal punishment, strong term. And you call it spanking. Yeah, sometimes we've got other kids hitting a kid with a paddle and it's metaphorical. And it's just saying you treat, you know. Yeah, just once or twice. Yeah. Right, just once or twice. And then it'd go zoom to a person saying, yeah, I would just beat repeatedly a few times for each kid. And, uh, you know, black and blue, I couldn't sit down. It was just such obvious, you know, this wasn't, he wasn't accidentally telling him his truth. He was clearly uh, lying pathologically about his program. I knew that he needed to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, he, he knew, he knew what the media was going to run with, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't stupid. Like I said, like, you know, when I say he wasn't intelligent, I, I don't mean that he wasn't, he couldn't figure out what was in his best interest. I'm just saying as a, as somebody who runs a therapeutic school that is dealing with psychological issues, He's not, he doesn't seem very intelligent in that way. But as somebody right. who's running businesses and who is trying to, you know, bring in, make, make you know, turn Alon into a big, you know, company and, and, you know, get his horse racing track out there and his properties, he's very intelligent in that way. And he could, he could trick the media in that aspect. Right. And you have to also consider if somebody were to come out against the program, like, you know, especially at that time when there, were, when there was no internet, then, you know, people could, he could just turn around and say with all his, you know, the staff members, people that work there, well, you know, this is just a troubled kid who couldn't make mm. it in the program. And is obviously, look at him, he's doing drugs. You know, he's, he, his family doesn't even want him, you know, don't listen to him, you know, right. uh, and he would run with that. He could definitely run with that. So, you know, he knew what he was doing. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, if he survived to this day, I think Alon might still be there. You know, well, he, he would be very old by that time, but. You know, the Joe Ritchie of that time today, I think he could still, he could still uh, run along like successfully. You said, you know, maybe he would have been able to keep it alive. It did shut down. Can you talk about how and why? Yeah. So, I mean, the way it shut down in my, you know, uh, one of my friends refers to it as like, you know, Frankenstein's monster coming back to, to get him. There was a big internet campaign put out by people who had gone to the school and wanted to expose it. 
So uh, people formed web pages, they formed um, you know forums and and you know groups where they could talk in, and you know sort of uh, you know manipulated the search terms. People that were more internet savvy into making these web pages and documents about Elon about how you know harmful it was, kind of to show up first. And in an age where people are on the internet and parents are researching these places before they send their kids there, which is really really good thing. You should definitely research a place before you send your child there. You know, all these things were popping up saying that this is a horrible place. They put people in the boxing ring. They scream at you. They throw you in the corner. They, you scrub all day, et cetera, et cetera. So parents stopped sending their kids there. Uh, New York State, you know, actually got tipped off and they went in and they said, we're not sending their kid, our kids here anymore either. Although I think I have a feeling that was probably because they didn't want to pay for it anymore and not because they really cared about the kids. But yeah, so people, uh, you know, sort of exposed the school, the kids who had went there. And, you know, put a damper on their wallet, you know, so they couldn't afford to run the school anymore without new people coming in. And by the time it shut down, I think there were only about like, I mean, in its heyday, Elon had hundreds of kids. When I was there, it must have had a 120 total or 140. Uh, and then, you know, by the time it ended, it had maybe like, I don't know, I think like 20 kids or something like that. So the internet campaign uh, obviously worked. It got me wondering, do you think that there are... Um similar schools that provide equal maltreatment as this one that are still in existence? Or do you think that they've sort of diminished over time or that insofar as there are schools that are maltreating uh, kids or, or other people that they are? Uh, that yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so? hard, it's hard to uh, pinpoint because again, these places are kind of kept under, under wraps and yeah. the whole industry is kind of an underground industry. You know, people don't really talk about that much. Uh, and whenever people see that my documentary, they say, you know, I had no idea that these places existed. Uh, yeah. Well, they do. And um, there's a lot still out there. Um, and, you know, if you search, you know, online, if you do your, your due diligence, there are websites uh, that detail the things that go inside, go on inside a lot of these programs that are still running. And a lot of people will go, they might run a program and that program will shut down and they'll go on to run another program in another state or something like that because there's no government oversight on these, uh, on these schools, you know, they don't, they're not classified into any, you know, one, uh, one particular, you know, classification. Uh, they can just kind of resell themselves as different things and do whatever they want to do. So uh, I think until there's some sort of federal regulation on, on these programs and kind of a way to um, classify them as a certain place, not like, you know, not just a behavioral modification program or a rehab or an OTC officer training camp or whatever. Um, these places are just going to still keep popping up and they're very profitable. You know, they really are uh, again, because before we talked, I said they have one of the great uh, marketing aspects, which is they target parents who are afraid that their kid is going to die or, or, you know, end up on the street. Uh, so they're very profitable and yeah, they still exist. Yeah, are they as like vicious as Elon was? Um, you know, I'm not in these places, so I can't tell. I've heard stories. I've heard a lot of right. a lot of crazy stories about different places. Uh, one school had like a lap dance therapy, from my understanding, which I don't I don't know. Maya can actually tell you more about that. Uh, very strange things still going on. Um, but I think Elon, in its in its own way, was extremely they were extremely like outward as to how violent they were like joe ritchie is there in the in the news in that expose that you probably saw just saying like yeah we have a boxing ring you know like i don't need to i don't need to convince you they had one you, you have the director of the school there saying that we did we have it do you think that it's possible that there could be people who attended a school that they may have hated but that really was overall basically ethical and then I don't think that's the case with this one. I really don't. But then someone, you know, people could get together, run an internet campaign and take down an otherwise, you know, somewhat decent school. Or do you think that this would definitely be Absolutely. something unique? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, especially today with, with, uh, you know, cancel culture and everything, I think there's no doubt about it. Um, but you know, that's people need to, to, there needs to be inspections into these places. And, you know, people need to, but the problem with inspections is Elon got inspected plenty of times. And they told the kids before inspections, like, look, um, if you say the wrong thing, you're going to be in trouble. You know, you're going to be put in the corner. You're going to have a general meeting. And if we do get shut down, 
around, then they're just going to send you to prison. So they did manipulate the investigation. So it's, it's really hard to kind of go into these places because they clean up everything when investigators do come. I think that there needs to be evidence as to the, that the school is doing the wrong thing. And there needs to be corroborating evidence amongst the kids that went there. So their stories don't change. Like if you talk to people from Milan, they'll all say the same thing without any like, they're all going to say, yeah, this is, this is how this was. And this is how this was. And they won't even say it in a way that's like, you know, uh, you know, oh, this was crazy or this was, you know, this was, you know, uh, you know, so bad or whatever. It's just, it's just, this is how it was. So yeah, of course, kids could get out and say, you know, the school abused me when it didn't. Uh, but then you have to look to other people that went there and look to people that went there that might have had a positive experience at these places, but can attest to the fact that they saw things wrong going on in there. You know, right. like that, that's kind of how I, I feel about it. You know, I, I did, you know, I don't totally fault Delon and, and I did take some valuable lessons from there, but I saw things in there that were definitely wrong. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, so, you know, I do come from a place of honesty. I'm not out to get anybody. So it's hard. It's hard to kind of figure out what's going on in other places like Elan um, when they're, they're very good at covering up what they do. And, you know, there are some disgruntled people that leave these places. But again, um, if stories match, then it's tough to deny it. Before we go and before I uh, let you tell people how to access your work and the film, I just want to say that having watched it, I really believe that you, when you're making a documentary, and I think you did it the right way, I suppose you have to be sort of above board that you're painting a narrative, for sure. If there's no narrative, there's no story. But at the same time, I think you gave everyone a fair shake. I, mean, right. I, don't, think, I don't think anything was so obviously jaded in one direction than another. I, I really do see that you left in people's accounts, like you said, that I had a basically okay time, and for my part, Maybe it made me more pro-social than anti-social, but I did see all these things that, you know, there's accusations that are levied against them. I did see all of them happen. And so I walked away from the movie saying, Jesus, I cannot believe that something like this has been allowed to exist for so long, but I guess I'll let other people uh, choose for themselves what, what they believe. Did I leave anything out before we go that you think would be good to talk about? Yeah. Let me touch on what you just said, because in being in, in, in doing this, this documentary and being at Elan myself and talking to a lot of people that went there. I never, I've, I can't say I've, I've really talked to anybody that like over exaggerated their experience there because you don't need to, you know what I mean? It, it was what it was, hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, and like I said, I'm not out to get anybody, but it's, I mean, that's, if you see the film, anybody out there listening to this, if you see the film, you know, that's, that's how it was in the film, you know what I mean? I'm not, you don't need to over-exaggerate what went on at Elan. You know, there are people that say, that come up with stories like, oh yeah, there were, there were kids at Elan that were murdered and, 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 you know, sexually abused and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm not here to include that because I can't back that up, you know what I mean? But I can prove that the structure and the, the what Elan was, was true. You know, there are documents, there are, there's news reports, there's, you know, everybody who, who says these things, they all say the same thing. So. Um, I'm not here to, to, and I'm not here to kind of get at anybody, you know, I'm not like out to get that ran this place or anything. I don't, I don't think, I think they should just walk away and, and, you know, maybe think about what they did. But a lot of people that worked there were students of the school at one time, they were in it as well. And they were convinced that this was the way to help people. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I can't fault them for that. And a lot, a lot of them, some of those staff members and some of those people that were there were good people, no doubt about it. And they did care. Um, so, you know, I'm not out to get anybody. Elan's shut down, you know, it's, it's over. <laughs> They're not taking any more people, but I just want people to know that these places do exist and that these stories are true. And I, and ideally I want people that have gone through a place like this to have a, something to show other people to, to, that, so those people will believe them. Yeah. Well, thank you. You've certainly given that. This is fabulous work. It's very rare, especially in the days of YouTube and Netflix, that I can sit and watch something for, I think, you know, over an hour <laughs> without moving. And this really was, I was fascinating in, in some of the best ways. So I thank you for making it. How do people access it? And, and uh, I know that it's yet to come out. So when does it come out? Uh, so it's going to be released on iTunes on May 19th. You can pre-order it now. Um, 
So uh, get on over to iTunes. You can find the film and the iTunes link at thelaststopfilm.com uh, slash watch. Uh, you can find the, the, the iTunes link. And it will be available on more VOD platforms and, um, and uh, DVD and Blu-ray very soon, too. Uh, it was picked up by Gravitas Ventures, and, and they're very, very good with distributing independent films and documentaries. So uh, there's plenty of places uh, to find it. Anything else? Any other links or uh, ways for people to access stuff that you're doing? Uh, I mean, the film is pretty much it for for right now. I mean, we're we we're you know we're always talking about you know doing follow-ups. There are going to be uh, some future projects uh, about the Elon story and about the troubled teen industry that are coming out, and I'll I'll update the webpage with that eventually. Um, so definitely stay tuned. But yeah, you, if you go to our webpage, you can join our, our discussion group on Facebook uh, and, and, you know, find out more about it. And just searching in Google about Elon and, uh, you know, or the troubled teen industry, you'll find a lot of information about it. Uh, it really is a rabbit hole. And like I said, everybody that starts going down it, uh, I get an email saying, hey, <laughs> you know, when can I see the movie or, or, or whatnot. Um, but I do, I, I, I did make this film to kind of sort of be a, a comprehensive medium to explain what it was like being at one of these schools. So uh, if you're curious, the documentary is definitely worth seeing. Todd Nielsen, it's been really great talking to you and thank you for all your work. I'll of course link to things in the show notes. All right, well, Zach, thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon.